This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. Today, I'm in conversation with Suleika Jawad, whose career aspirations as a war correspondent were cut short when at the age of 22, she was diagnosed with leukemia. Faced with slim odds of survival, she knew she wanted to find a way to still participate in the world, so she started writing a daily journal entitled Life Interrupted, which became an Emmy award-winning New York Times column and a video series that she wrote from her hospital bed. When Suleika finally walked out of the cancer ward four years later, she found that her physical body was cancer-free but she was far from being healed. She then decided to embark on a three-month road trip across the country to meet some of the strangers who had written her letters during her time at the hospital. Their stories and her personal account of her experience became the foundation for her New York Times bestselling memoir, Between Two Kingdoms. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, Suleika recounts the darkest and the lightest moments of her four-year battle with leukemia. She shares what important life lessons she learned throughout her journey from diagnosis to remission, and beyond on her cross-country road trip of healing and self-discovery. I found Suleika's story to be inspirational, and if you did too, please feel free to share it far and wide. And as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So without further delay, I bring you Suleika Jawad. Okay, Suleika Jawad, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be here with you. Likewise, it's great to have you. So, Lika, you've done amazing work. Your life story is incredible. And I'd love to dig into all that and kind of see what surfaces between us. But it'd be really great to kind of start this conversation by asking you, in your own words, how would you define who you are? Mm, This is the hardest question and the ever-evolving question. I would say I am an artist, a writer, a journalist, a community organizer. And if I were to define a a through line in my work, it's the in-between places, the people and topics that elude easy categorization. Mm -hmm. And is it fair to say then too that, you know, this through line of, of, of pursuing what it means to be in between places is not just a professional thing, but it's also a very personal thing in terms of your own lived experience. So how did you kind of realize that this was something that was deeply important to you? What in your childhood kind of shaped and formed this, this understanding, so to speak? Mm. So I think that sense of in-betweenness uh, is something that I felt for as long as I can remember. My father's Tunisian, my mom is Swiss. I was born on the Lower East Side of New York City and I have three passports. And And for someone who maybe hasn't grown up in that kind of multicultural home with parents from very different backgrounds and, and faiths and cultures, uh, you might think that one would feel like they're from a lot of places. But I think instead of feeling that way, I often 
didn't feel like I fully fit in anywhere. I call myself the spackle between all these different cultures. And so that experience of being on, on the fringes of being a kind of eternal misfit, um, made me a keen observer, I think, of, of the world and, and my place in it. Um, and a, a translator in a way as I kind of traveled back and forth between these realms. Mm-hmm. And what you just shared right there, uh, Soleiko, really speaks to my own lived experience as well in terms of trying to build a bridge between these two worlds that I occupy, that being Afghan and that being American, and, and having both kind of better understand each other with me in the middle. So at one point I read that you wanted to become a war correspondent. So with this in-between place, how did that kind of lead you down that trajectory of wanting to become a war correspondent and tell stories of conflict and loss and grief and uncertainty? How did that all kind of take shape for you? So I think that in-between us as a kid was not something I appreciated I felt like it was my duty to shapeshift and be a chameleon and assimilate in, in whatever, you know, circumstance or culture I found myself in. As a kid, you know, the idea of, of being unique or different isn't something that's necessarily desirable. I very much wanted to fit in, even if that meant, you know, assimilating at all costs. But as I got older, and, and especially once I went to college, I began to understand that being a kind of border dweller of existing in those liminal in-between places was actually a gift and, and a real asset and skill. And I think that it you know, has very much shaped who I am. Um, but more than that, it's ended up shaping the trajectory of my work. I seek out those in-between places now in my own life and and the lives of others. I I find them fascinating and I've made it my work to really interrogate what it means to live on the margins. And so that idea of, of being a war correspondent, I do think stemmed from my upbringing, from the sense of conflict, but more than that, from, from the possibility of reconciliation and, and dialogue that happens um, or that can happen when you're in a place or in a conversation where two different entities, for whatever reason, aren't able to actually speak to each other. Mm-hmm. I really like that framing. That's really interesting. And something along the way happened in your life, Suleika, that really just changed the trajectory of your life. Could you tell us how you came to understand and know that you were diagnosed with leukemia and how that uh, really just changed all your plans and your dreams? So I graduated from college in 2010 and moved abroad to Paris. I was working as a paralegal by day at a law firm and by night and on the weekends, really, you know, trying to write, trying to get my foot into the door. And I also wasn't feeling well. I was exhausted all the time. I had all kinds of different symptoms. But I think like a lot of young people, 
the possibility of serious illness wasn't really something that factored into my thinking. I felt like I had time. I wouldn't go so far as to say I felt immortal, but I had that sense of kind of boundless possibility that a lot of young people have. And right before I got my diagnosis, I got what I thought was going to be my first big break, which was an opportunity to work as a stringer for a newspaper in Tunisia my you know father's homeland and and to assist a reporter in covering you know what was then called the the very beginning of the arab spring and this was hugely exciting to me it was the first time that i saw a path toward a vocation that really excited and, and nourished me and that also brought together all those kind of disparate parts of of my identity and my skill sets into one but before i was able to do any of that my life was interrupted i got a diagnosis of a very aggressive form of leukemia and overnight i found myself on a plane back to upstate new york where my parents were living and i never returned to paris i never returned to my job i never had the opportunity to report on the revolution taking place in Tunisia and it was one of those you know bifurcating moments in an existence where you realize that there's been an irreparable fracture there's your life before and everything that comes after mhm and so like what was it like to kind of have to settle into that feeling what was it like to kind of have to you know accept that that new reality you know what surfaced and how do you kind of process that i think the truth is that at least for those first couple of weeks i was in denial i thought of this as a short sojourn in the kingdom of the sick uh one in which i hopefully wouldn't have to get too comfortable or to unpack my bags and i was determined to remain the person I'd been to hold on to those same dreams and aspirations I'd had pre-diagnosis but very quickly upon entering the hospital that first summer I realized that my life would never be the same that I would never be that recent college graduate and that a lot of those plans wouldn't come to pass I learned you know after about 6 weeks in the hospital that the standard chemotherapy treatments had not worked for me and that at that point uh my only option was an experimental clinical trial and hopefully eventually a bone marrow transplant which was my only shot at a cure but my doctors were were very clear from the beginning that my prognosis wasn't good i had about a 35% chance of long-term survival and so as all that began to sink in i think i felt real fear real grief and also anger mhm and that's really interesting anger angry at who or at what um what what exactly were you angry about i'm really curious to know about that so that's a strange thing about cancer it's difficult to aim your anger at something that you can't feel or see or touch and it's also confusing because it's something that exists in your body you know we're talking 
about uh, war. And I think cancer is an illness maybe more than any that invokes certain battle metaphors, right? We talk about fighting your cancer. We talk about uh, a battle with cancer, but it's your, your body you're at odds with, which is strange. But I also felt angry at the isolation. I was put in a hospital room that I wasn't allowed to leave. And anybody who entered had to suit up in what looked like a hazmat suit. And to be so cut off from the world was incredibly hard and frustrating. But I think more than anything, I was frustrated and angry about my new physical limitations. Everything was hard. Walking was hard. Eating was hard. Breathing was hard. Talking was hard. And to go from from being in a place in my life where I felt so much possibility, where I'd worked so hard to prepare for a life, and more specifically to be an independent adult, to suddenly have to be so dependent on others and to confront the fragility of my body day in and day out was really hard. And I kept, you know, looking for ways that I could be productive, that I could participate in the world from my hospital bed. And I very quickly learned that I needed to let go of those old ambitions and dreams and to try to apply them to my current circumstances was a recipe for endless frustration. And so I entered into a softer place, not of pursuing passions, but pursuing new curiosities, which felt like a softer, gentler way into figuring out what I could do and what I could create from my hospital bed. Mm -hmm. And that sense of curiosity that you kind of embraced a new sense of curiosity. What were some revelations that you came to during that, that exploration? So I'd always thought of myself as someone who would help other people tell their stories. And of course, you know, for my hospital bed, I didn't have the possibility uh, of traveling the world and, and reporting from, from faraway locales. And so instead I got curious about what was happening in that hospital room. I began to jot down in my journal little overheard snippets of dialogue between nurses. I wrote about the transformations happening in my body and in myself. I wrote about navigating our insane healthcare system. I wrote about the topics that felt taboo or uncomfortable to talk about. I wrote about everything and strangely, you know, in writing for the first person, I began to see a new way of writing, which was a kind of writing that lives in that blurred boundary between memoir and reporting. Yeah, that's exceptionally interesting. And so, so like that reminds me of, of what I like to share with others is that I believe freedom exists on the other side of vulnerability. And so you have to go through vulnerability to kind of find that sense of freedom and, and sharing our own story and our lived experience allows us to kind of find that place. And so, so can you talk about how your writing and your work then eventually impacted people across the world through your writing, through the New York times and, and your column there, help us understand how that came to fruition. 
So I should say that in that first year, nothing about the experience of, of being so sick made me want to share. It made me want to hide. It made me want to retreat from the world. And so a lot of that writing I did in private. But about a year after my diagnosis, a few weeks out from this very risky, dangerous bone marrow transplant, something in me shifted. Uh, The poet Adrian Rich says that it's what's under concealment in us that explodes into poetry. And I felt that sense of of concealment and poetic explosion very viscerally. Um, You know, in the lead up to that bone marrow transplant, I knew that my chances of, of surviving the transplant were quite slim. And I wanted in, in my own small way to participate in the world, to give back more than I'd taken. And so I set about first starting a blog uh, where I kind of reported from the front lines of my hospital bed and then eventually um, ended up pitching a column and a video series to the New York Times that was called Life Interrupted. And, and that launched that first week in the bone marrow transplant unit. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's really, really interesting. And so, so like as you kind of shared your thoughts with the world from this, from this hospital bed where you're going through this really treacherous kind of journey physically, emotionally, spiritually, and you're sharing your thoughts, how were they received by others? And what did that teach you? And what did you learn from that experience? It might sound strange, but I hadn't given much thought to what the reception of the column would be. It's probably, you know, one of the first times in my life where I worked very hard on something without any expectation of what would come out of it or any anxiety of accomplishment. Just the act, the physical act of writing those columns was so challenging for me that I would end up writing in these five or 10 minute bursts staggered throughout the day. And because the future had become quite a scary place and I didn't know if I would get to exist in that future, I was focused on the work and the work felt so good. It felt good to have a job to do other than just being a patient, to be, you know, really kind of stepping into my voice for the first time and, and, and tapping into a new kind of power. And all this to say that, you know, when the column did launch, the next morning I woke up to hundreds of emails and notes from readers all over the world. And I was struck by two things. One was that sense of connection that had felt so foreclosed to me in the year before, you know, spent shuttling between my childhood bedroom and and medical isolation in the hospital. And just the ways in which when we dare to tell the unvarnished truth of our story, when we when we dare to share vulnerably the way that that creates a reverberation, the I very quickly becomes a you and a we. So that was what struck me first. And and the other thing that struck me was 
you know, the title of the column was Life Interrupted, and I hoped that it would be resonant with people who were also dealing with life-threatening illnesses or maybe their caregivers. But what I didn't expect was to hear from people who were experiencing all kinds of life interruptions. Veterans of war were returning home and struggling with PTSD. Um, I heard from a death row inmate in Texas who was healthy but, but related to that shared experience of isolation and facing our mortality. I heard from people going through divorces, from the parents of children who had died by suicide. I heard from, you know, smaller reckonings from recent college grads who were lost in trying to figure out their way forward. And so that that interpretation of interruption made me realize first, I guess, that that most of us, uh, if we live long enough, are going to have some kind of experience that brings us to the floor. And that in the sharing of those stories, we learn again and again that we're more alike than we are different. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, and that brings up what Krista Tippett says, who's the, the host of the On Being podcast. She says, the more particular that you get about your own story, the more universal it becomes. So it's this incredible sense of transcendence and transformation that happens when you get into the intimacy of your own lived experience that other people can find a sense of humanity in and for as it pertains to the story that you're telling and the, what you're sharing, right? Yeah, and I think... I'll just add to to what Krista says um, because I think it's so true. But I think it's not just in, in in the particulars, but but in the honesty that you share those particulars with. You know, as a lifelong reader and and, and bookworm, I've had you know this experience as a reader where I read something on the page and I feel an immediate sense of connection and resonance. And it's especially powerful when it's something that leaves me thinking to myself, I didn't know you were allowed to say that out loud, to write it on the page. And so that that sense of recognition and, and experiences that for whatever reason are enshrouded in silence or taboo, I think it is nexus of of honesty and then a, a bigger global shared resonance and, and sense of recognition. Now, what I'd like to talk about now, Suleika, is those moments of connectivity and those moments of genuine acknowledgement of, of oneself in relationship to others, especially as it pertains to your four years of being in the hospital. I think what I'm trying to say is what were those moments when somebody would say something and you thought to yourself, this is exactly what I need. This is exactly what I needed to hear versus other times. Like what was the thing that made it really, really genuine and, and led to a sense of connectivity? So I think, you know, trauma has a way of dividing your worldview into two camps. There are those who get it and those who don't. And so one of the most powerful things that happened in those four years of illness was really reimagining what community meant to me. I think like a lot of people who've been sick or who've lived some kind of trauma or tragedy, uh, the people you expect to show up don't always show up 
but maybe more importantly, this experience of illness allowed me to encounter so many people I wouldn't otherwise have been able to. So I ended up making a, a group of friends, a fellow cancer comrades, all of whom were in their 20s and 30s, and we formed our own buddy system. We would go with each other to chemo, to doctor's appointments. We would show up on each other's doorsteps in the middle of the night when someone got bad news. We would pick up the phone when the anxiety attack struck. And so finding that new community of people who understood what I was living, who could communicate without the need for over-explanation or maybe reassurance to just be able to exist and to speak honestly with someone who had walked a, a similar path was a truly life-changing and, and sustaining experience. As far as lessons that I learned the hard way, it's that, you know, unfortunately, the onus ends up often being on the sick person, uh, on the person who is in the midst of a reckoning to explain to friends or family members who may not necessarily understand what that experience is like. And I think, you know, sometimes when, when people don't know what to say, they end up not saying anything at all and they stay away because of it. And so I certainly had that experience uh, with different friends, people I expected to be the first to show up who, who met me instead of silence. But I should also just add that, you know, I've come to understand that we don't often know what the people around us are loving. And in those moments of distress or, or difficulty, sometimes people show up maybe because they're not your people, but sometimes people don't show up because they're dealing with some private burden that may have nothing to do with you or their desire to love you and to care for you. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we always have to remember that people are suffering in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's a very important perspective to kind of always keep in the back of our minds. And what I'd like to do at this point is to get some insight in terms of how you beat your cancer and, and then how you came out of this and, and what that did to you physically and how you felt emotionally and, and spiritually. Mm, it's such an important question. So, you know, to me, for, for the better part of four years or, or 1,400 days, my goal every day was survival. And, and the end point, the kind of hoped for outcome was a cure. And I hadn't given much thought as to what would happen if and when I reached that point. And I distinctly remember the day I was released from the hospital and I was declared cancer free and, and done with treatment. I received, you know, a dozen texts from friends and family congratulating me on being done. And that word done was something I puzzled over for the next couple of months because as much as I wanted to be done with cancer and to move on from that experience and to quickly and organically fold back into the rhythms of living, 
I realized first that I wasn't done and also that that moving on from our most difficult passages is a kind of myth. You don't get to stow away your past and your pain and leave it behind you. Instead, that process is one of moving forward, of, of integrating what you lived through into your present. And so what I thought was, was the end of a kind of healing was really the beginning of, of healing and recovery. And that word recovery is, is one that we throw around and, and kind of implicit in it is this sense of, of return to an old self. And, and I also quickly understood that I was not going to be able to return to the person I'd been pre-diagnosis. That person no longer existed and that recovery wasn't in fact about salvaging the old, but a kind of brute terrifying act of, of transformation and self-discovery. And so I very much needed time to regain my physical strength, time to reflect on what I'd lived through and who I wanted to become next. And so I ended up um, almost like a kind of self-invented rite of passage deciding to learn how to drive, borrowing a friend's car, and embarking on a 15,000-mile solo road trip around the country, which sounds like a, a terrible idea for a new, a new driver, and it probably was. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. So so the, really quickly, just as a, as a data point, this was the first, this, you, you had just learned how to drive, this was the first time? Yes. I learned how to drive, and a month later, I left home. Not something I'd, I'd recommend. <laughs> sure, sure. And so, like, help us understand online, like, the, the, the vehicle that you rode was a beautiful yellow Volkswagen van. Is that what you took across the country? No, I, I wish. I, you know, I had very limited funds. I did this in a very bootstrappy way. A friend of mine lent me his old car that I took and... I, I rented out my apartment and saved up about $4,000 to cover me for about three months on the road. And, you know, what I did was I didn't want to go on some sort of touristy boondoggle. I really wanted this to be a meaningful, almost ritual experience that would help me kind of shoulder some of these complicated feelings and, and, helped me bridge the distance between no longer and not yet. So I ended up visiting about 22 of those strangers who'd written to me in response to my life interrupted column and had really, you know, sustained me during my sickest years. Uh, and it wasn't until I got home from that road trip that I actually ended up buying my first car, which was a bright yellow 1972 Volkswagen camper van. And it's a funny story, but I was, you know, working on my book manuscript and, and to anyone who's a writer or who likes to write, then you probably understand that, uh, especially when you're trying really hard to write, the temptation for procrastination is quite high. Um, so one day I was on Craigslist, just poking around and trying to do everything other than write. And I found an ad for a Volkswagen camper van. And I wrote 
to the person and and asked how much this van cost and 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 this guy ended up being a retired air force general who had just been diagnosed with cancer and had come across my column and so he wrote me back and shared all this and told me name a price and the van's yours nobody ever bought one of these ancient buses to be practical and so that's how I came to own my first car and, and to own this beautiful sunshine yellow van uh, that's on the cover of my book. I love that. And your story beautifully uh, demonstrates that in some sense, the world in that we live in is not linear, right? It comes full circle. There are these concentric circles that we essentially always fold into, whether we realize it or not. And your story beautifully demonstrates that. Yeah. And, you know, I think so much of our, our resilience is tied to community. And, and something I've been thinking about, especially in this last year, is that our first participation in a community has to be one of, of generosity and service, right? You You can't say get sick and then expect people you don't know well or you haven't cultivated relationships with to suddenly show up for you. And so I think that commitment to being of service, to to being a generous and loving and compassionate presence in my community, in my work, it, it has really been a kind of guiding principle. And to your point, the reverberations of that, the kind of circularity of that, comes back in, in ways that are sort of extraordinary and, and unexpected. But to be able to to show up without expectation of anything in return, I think is is key to building community and, and key to that circularity that you're describing. Yeah, I really love that. I really appreciate you sharing that. And so, so Leica, as you kind of went live, so to speak, with your memoir, Between Two Kingdoms, a memoir of life interrupted. What did you learn from writing this book? What did you learn from the process of essentially sharing these stories of people that that really reached out to you and you went, you went and visited them in person? What did you learn and what did this process of writing your memoir teach you? Mm. It's such a good question and it's a, a big question that I could spend a week answering. I think first and, and foremost, I learned that that survival and that healing is its own kind of creative act. And that was something that I saw refracted across the stories of all these different individuals who I met on the road and, and during my time in the hospital. And the different ways that people reimagine limitations or kind of alchemize them into creative risk. That's something that's always really interested me. But maybe the biggest thing that I learned was that when I left on the road trip, I really hoped that by the end of those hundred days, I would somehow find myself back in the kingdom of the well. I was very much thinking of my health as binary, as, as sick or well. 
And the strange thing about the place I found myself in when I emerged from treatment was a kind of limbo, a sort of in-between place where on paper I was better, but off paper I couldn't have felt further from being the healthy, happy person I wanted to be on the other side of this. And so in my own you know, living and, and writing uh, of my experience and in the stories of, of so many others, I've come to realize that that kind of binary thinking is not just unproductive, but, but deeply flawed. Most of us, especially as we live longer and longer, aren't either sick or well. We exist somewhere in the messy middle and that the border between those two realms is very porous. And so doing away with that expectation of being one thing or the other, which in a sense is something that I've struggled to reconcile my entire life and, and allowing myself to make a home in the in-between place in that wilderness of survivorship on my own terms, in my own words, was no small gift. And what you're saying really allows this to kind of surface on my end where a sense of home and belonging is quite literally a place within. It's it's the idea of of accepting this internal landscape where we're always discovering, exploring, creating, suffering, trying to survive, and really trying to make sense of who we are in relationship to ourselves and who, we're, who we are in relationship to the world. And this place of always going back and forth and trying to see whether one notion maps to the other and vice versa. Mm, that's so well said. Yeah. And that's really what I find to be really exquisite about your work is you, you really, really do that. And it shows up in your writing and it shows up in your talks and the way you kind of share your story. Like I always tell people, I think, I don't think life is linear. I think life is really coming and becoming the person that we've always been and embracing it in a very genuine and authentic way because there is no arrival to a place that's unknown. I think it's an arrival and acceptance of somebody who we knew when we were four or five, six years old. Mm. It's so true. And, you know, that's why one of my favorite shapes is the spiral. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. For that, for that reason. For that reason is what you're saying. For that yeah. reason. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I love that. And, and what I'd love to kind of do as we kind of close here is I always love to ask my guests one final question. I know it's a big question, but if you could, how would you go about answering the question, what is your message for the world? All right. This is my, my message for today. If you were to ask me a week from now, it might be different. You know, I think we're, we're taught to have tough skin, to armor ourselves against bad, to be resilient, you know, to develop that kind of thick callus and the last decade of my life has been an education and a different approach, which is having tender, porous skin of meeting hardship, not with armor, but with vulnerability and openness with, you know, dealing with, say, grief, not by, by armoring your heart against the possibility of more loss, more love, but of really opening yourself up 
to the unknown and opening yourself up to these experiences that may feel brutal or or painful and, and not dodging or numbing or fixing against them but really um, learning to coexist with them and, and to learn from them and, and to transform them. That's great. So look at Jawad, thank you for uh, the work that you do. And uh, thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a joy. And, and thank you for, for your work. It's an honor. Thank you for joining the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced and hosted by me, Bakhtash Ahadi. Audio engineering by Joke and Jemmy. Digital marketing and assets by Dana Drahos and Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashita Ahadi and theme music by Kais Esaud. If you enjoy the content that we're sharing here at the Stories of Transformation podcast, you can help us spread our message and our content far and wide by telling your friends and your family, as well as leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're grateful for your support, and on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. As always, do good and be well wherever you are in the world. All right, that's all I got for now. Until next time.